Just before we begin, I wanted to let you know that this podcast contains some descriptions of physical, psychological, and sexual violence. Please use discretion. In English, the word injustice means the lack of fairness or justice. But in Arabic, the word is a bit different. In Arabic, the word for injustice is zulm. As opposed to English, the origin of the word itself in Arabic has nothing to do with justice, rights, or even law. Zulm, or injustice, shares the same origin as a word with zalam, which means darkness. Arabic is a poetic language. Words often have different meanings. In this case, injustice not only means the lack of fairness or justice, but also implies the lack of life's light. This reminds me of a story I learned about once. The story of one of the first gods to be named in Greek mythology. His name was Erebus, the personification of the deep darkness of the universe. Erebus, as a word, means a place of darkness between the land of the living and the eternal world of death. If Esa's network of detentions is the realization of this idea of darkness and injustice, I think Sidnaya is its Erebus. From Message Heard in the Sierra campaign, this is Behind the Sun. I'm Nadia Bukai. In early 2012, Diab was still active in the streets, like hundreds of thousands of Syrians trying to put an end to Assad's rule. While he was in Adra prison, Riyadh got sick and was rushed to hospital. Riyadh had a gastrointestinal perforation, which is a condition that might cause death if complications were to develop. For about five hours, doctors operated on him to save his life. When he woke up, Riyadh found himself chained to the bed with lots and lots of tubes attached to his body to support his life. He learned from the doctors that he had holes in his stomach. The third day they came and they said, we have to make a test for you. We, we need money from you. I said, I don't have money. They said, okay, if you don't have money, we couldn't do this test. I said, how I will find the money to you? I'm a prisoner. I don't have visit. My family didn't come. I don't have anybody here in this old country. But I said, okay, I will solve this problem. I have a friend, maybe if I called him, he will come immediately and give you the money which you want. They said, no, uh, we don't accept to your friend to come and give money. Just your family who can pay to you. Man, my family not here. They are in Turkey. And I say, I say, didn't even hear about me. How oh, they will come and pay for you, okay? You want money? My friend will bring and give you money and we will solve everything. Oh, no, 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 forbidden. This rejection was heavy on Riyad. He felt so helpless and started to remove all the life-supporting tubes. He was crying in despair, saying that he didn't want to live anymore. Quickly, doctors restrained and calmed him. They said they would call his friend. Of course, that friend was Diab. A doctor called me and told me that a relative in the hospital 
needed tests and continued care. And somebody had to pay for his examinations and his medicines. I immediately knew he was talking about Riyadh, which he confirmed. I asked what exactly was going on. The doctor told me not to worry. He's in the hospital and might need to stay there for a while. I asked him which hospital, and he told me it was Damascus National Hospital. I went there with my father. He had demanded to come with me when he knew Riyadh was sick. Diab and his father went to buy some juice for Riyadh. The doctor had told them that the fluids were the only nutrition Riyadh's stomach could handle after the surgery. The doctor told us he couldn't deliver the juice and he couldn't help us any further because intelligence agents were there. He made me feel that if they found out he was helping us, they might detain him. So we had to find a way to enter and deliver it ourselves. The intelligence agents prevented Diab and his father from seeing Riyadh. But Diab's father argued loudly with them, which drew the attention of an intelligence officer. That was dangerous for Diab, who was freed from Sidnaya a few months earlier. After a separate interrogation for Diab and his father, in which they told the officers that Riyadh is Diab's brother-in-law, they were allowed to see Riyadh. We went in. My dad has a tender heart. So for him, the scene we found was extremely painful. Of course, my dad wasn't used to seeing anything like this. Riyadh was almost naked, with just a small towel over his body. They had shackled one of his arms and chained both of his legs to the hospital bed. My dad looked and scolded the guard. The man can't even walk. Are you afraid of him escaping? There are more than 10 of you. How could he escape? Why all of these chains? Untie him for a minute. And they did unshackle him. My dad helped Riyadh up and wiped his forehead. He came, he put his hand over my head, then my cheek, and he said, okay, don't worry, my son. We will be with you, we will help you all times, and we will try to help you all the time. And we paid for your uh, test, don't worry. I told you before, it was a very sensitive feelings and sensitive time for me when, always when I remember that moment. In 2012, Assad's grip on power tore Syria to pieces. His loyalist rhetoric often referred to the phrase Al-Assad aw nahrak al-Balad, meaning Assad or we burn the country. This certainly became a reality. Assad forces were mercilessly killing and kidnapping peaceful protesters in broad daylight in the streets. And the security slash intelligence launched mass campaigns to arrest countless activists from their homes, especially those living in areas that were famous at the time for protesting and rising against Assad, like Homs, Hama, and others. Assad seemed to develop a sense of being untouchable. All the threats from the West didn't deter him. Did it surprise you that they didn't attack? No. 
No, it, it wasn't a surprise, but I, I think... NBC's Bill Neely was referring to the West not punishing Assad for committing war crimes. He asked this of Assad in his 2016 interview. As you heard him say, Assad wasn't surprised that no one held him accountable for the crimes he committed, which included gassing the people in Ghouta in 2013 and other similar acts of brutality. His regime also got the message and was emboldened to ruthlessly continue crushing the Syrians. After my participation in the revolution, I was chased again, and I was arrested again in 2012 in April. I spent 100 days in the Air Force Intelligence Branch. Those 100 days were harder than the entire five years I spent in Sidnaya prison. There, I saw the real difference. I saw how these places changed dramatically from places where you could see human rights violations into sites of crimes against humanity. I witnessed how people were dying of starvation. I saw people dying under torture inside these intelligence branches. I saw people with the same wounds and sores, the extreme thinness. Diab is describing a situation that would later become common for anyone arrested by Assad's men. In July 2012, my father Najah was arrested and sent to a military intelligence branch. They abducted him from the street while he was on his way to work. A Mukhabarat informant had passed his name to the intelligence, calling him a provocateur. He was crowded in a solitary confinement cell with tens of detainees. After one month of his arrest, he had already witnessed deaths, torture, and lost 15 kilograms. My mother had to pay 1,200 euros in exchange for his life and release. I didn't speak about my past, that I had been detained previously. I was so worried about telling them the story of my life and how I was detained before for five years, which would mean that they would never release me, that I would die there. But instinctively, when the interrogator asked me, were you detained before? I answered, no, never in my life have I been in a prison. That kind of luck is very rare inside Assad's detention centers. I was released at the end of July 2012. I couldn't stay in Syria anymore because I felt like I was under the spotlight. I felt the grip of the security forces was tightening. The detentions were growing to a mass scale. So I felt that it was best to get out of Syria. There was no way to stay there in that place. I felt like I couldn't move anymore. It is also worth noting that Diab was from Damascus, a regime stronghold and also where he was arrested. Mukhabarat men were so busy subduing the hotspots of the peaceful revolution. They were focused on persecuting people based on their IDs. If you were from Homs, Dara, Idlib, Aleppo or Daraya, it meant you were going to be targeted by the intelligence groups. Despite this though, the protests continued to grow across the country. Ofran's family were from Daraya. During this time, they were trying to locate her brother Majd. We start go searching about him, about an, him and Abed, about any information. 
me and my mother, we visit some families that uh, have detainees coming out. We show them pictures of Abed and Majid to ask them if they saw Abed or Majid inside as a detention center. We went to a lot of places for regime to ask about detainees. We went for official places and non-official places, and we always have the same answer. We don't have them. We don't know anything about them. They saw us as bad people, and they deal with us in this way. But we kept asking. I think that the persistence of Daria's people is a reminder of how, despite Assad's tight grip, the people continued to fight back. And even sometimes when we asked the regime or uh, the soldier, they told us we killed him. In this very cold way, some of them said that we killed him. Imagine they tell that to mother and his sister in very bad way. That lie devastated the family so much. The news was coming about the death of detainees in detention. Many of those who were arrested in 2012 didn't come out. The families would go and ask for their loved ones with no answers. What was happening inside the Mukhabarat branches was unthinkable. For first seven or eight days, nobody asked me any question. This is Abu Imad the army engineer from the last episode. He's from Jabal al-Zawiya, a town in Idlib Governorate, northwestern Syria. Since late 2011, the area had seen a brutal crackdown by Assad's army. In one of the assaults, many of Abu Imad's relatives were killed. When his commanding officers ordered him to accompany the operational officers in his town to assist them, he refused. After that, he was arrested and sent to the military investigation branch, 248, on charges of, quote, thinking of defection. Every day I heard only hearing interrogation with the civilians. Why you are going to the protest? Who invite you to come? Who's, uh, who was with you? And I hear the pitting, screaming, torture, all kind of torture, just hearing. And let my mind imagine what is happening outside the cell. When I hear their screaming, the kind of the screaming, I'm sure nobody heard the scream like what I heard in the prison. Despite being less than a 10-minute walk away from the central square in Damascus, known as Umayyad Square, people passing by the branch 248 can't hear these screams from the street. Like all the intelligence branches spread across the country, the infamous secret dungeons lie underneath a densely populated area. Their immense brutality could only be felt and heard within. That level of entrapment and isolation, I suppose, was meant to crack the minds of the detainees. Just think, when my turn will come, when I will scream like them, after one hour, after two hours, in this night, tomorrow, they will beat me, they will torch me to scream like them, or maybe they will shoot me directly because I am an officer. Maybe nobody will ask me any question. Maybe they will execute me any time. Or they will investigate with me and uh, they will beat me or torch me to scream like them. After seven days of psychological torture, an interrogator came for Abu Imad. He told me, I have nothing about you. 
I don't know what I'm going to ask you. There is nothing in your file. So I told him why I am here. He told me nothing in your file. So I will release or I will make report to release you these days and maybe tomorrow or after tomorrow you will be free. This is after eight days. And after that, I wait three, four days, nothing happened. In this time, bad dreams, bad thinking coming to my mind. That's mean they will execute me. They know that I'm not belong to them. I will not kill people. And I am from very hot area, Jabal Zawiya Adlib. The best solution for them to execute me without any reason. Welcome to our viewers on PBS in America and also around the world. For the third time in a week, we're getting reports of execution-style shootings in Syria. The latest accounts come of people being shot on the way to work at a factory. Diplomats are now talking about an apparent pattern of attacks against Syrian civilians. Indeed, the UN says the massacre of more than 100 last week in Hula may amount to a crime against humanity. But the international community still can't agree on what to do to stop this bloodshed. On the 25th of May 2012 in Hula, northwest of Homs, 108 people were killed, including 34 women and 49 children. This pattern, by Assad's forces, was repeated in my village, Jayda Tartuz, a suburb of Damascus. On the 1st of August 2012, 35 people and some of the victims were tortured and killed execution-style. Some of them were from my family. The thing that haunts me the most about this massacre is that Assad men left some dead bodies under olive trees. People were murdered beneath olive branches. It was a message in response to the revolution. After this massacre, my family and I had to flee our home in Jdeida Tartuz and live with my grandparents in Damascus. We weren't the only people thinking that this could happen to us. The atrocities in Jdeida Tartuz stuck in the minds of everyone in Syria. With each passing day, the families of the detainees became more worried about their loved ones. If Assad was doing this in broad daylight, what would he do to their children in the dark detention dungeons? For a long time, Ghafran's family were trying to locate Majd, until one day, their phone rang with good news. Ghafran's family learned that their son was still alive. The man who called them was Majd's fellow detainee. He said only one sentence. I have information about Majd and I want to meet you in any place. My brother went directly to see him. He was first person he have information about Majid. He said that he were with him and they put him in a small cell, individual, not with the group. And also they gave him number. When they call names, they don't call his name, they call number. Inside Assad's death camps and detention centers, his men give the detainees numbers instead of their names, just to make it extremely hard for anyone to trace them. But the detainees inside the packed chambers and in neighboring cells talk to each other. It's the only form of resistance they have inside these unjust places, to keep telling their stories. We are whispering to each other, who are you, from where you are coming. We know each other. For example, my neighbor, he was whispering to me about his name, 
and he's uh, under arresting. And also he telling me I have another Nippur beside me. And his Nippur told him also he has another uh, Nippur like that. So we know we, we are Nippurs. There is a row of cells where they are putting in everyone, in each one, one of us. Abu Imad wasn't executed as he thought he would be. After not finding anything that would incriminate him at Branch 248, they moved him to another detention, Branch 293. It's the main military intelligence directorate's branch responsible for keeping Assad's control over army officers. But after 2011, there were civilians inside as well. The scale of the abduction was massive. The place was packed full of detainees to the extent that they used the toilets as cells. Four or five cells from me, there is one civilian guy. He's shouting, sometimes he's shouting in the night, especially on the night, stop this train, stop this train. He was imagining himself that he's riding train or traveling by train. All time he's shouting, stop this train, driver, stop this train, I want to go home. Maybe he's since one month, two months here, he, he lost his mind. And um, if I stay like him like that after uh, a few days or months or a few weeks, I will be like him. After torture and coercion, Abraimad signed a confession that said he thought of defection. After a few days, they move us around 15 people. They came at the night time. They shout my name and other 14, we are 15 people. They put us in other room. We, we name it Mehrab room. Al-Mihrab is a curved mark inside the wall of a mosque that indicates the direction of Mecca towards which Muslims should face when praying. That room in branch 293 had the same mark according to Abraimad. But it wasn't a place of God. This room, it was completely closed. Only one door, iron door in opening area. The smell was very, 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 very bad. Even sometimes we cannot take a breath. You feel if you uh, breathe in this musty smell or rotten smell, you will die. We are putting our clothes in our uh, nose to try to take some good air or uh, filter the air to breathe, and uh, it's the, not work. After that, we give up. We are waiting uh, our time to die from this smell. I just can tell you, the smell, the smell was there. يعني, it's remind you uh, for the grapes, how you will be inside your grave. After the seven days, they release us from there, and they move us to Sidnaya. As Abu Imad neared Sidnaya, he got some guidance from a fellow prisoner. There was one guy was uh, with us in the car. He told, we are going to Sidnaya, and my advice to you, when they open the door, jump directly from the door to outside. Don't wait your turn. Jump forward. Because if you reach there and you didn't jump directly, he will push you from uh, f- from behind and you will fall down in your face. And maybe you will break your hand or your leg or your nose or you will injure yourself. When the car stopped, we jump and they took us inside. They asked us to take off all our clothes. One of the guards, he said, now we welcome you and you know our welcome or maybe you don't know, but you will see now. 
And after that, they ask us to lay down on the ground on our stomach and to raise our legs to up. And it's called in Arabic dulab, English tire. They bring uh, one car tire. They, they take a small piece from this tire, around uh, one meter length. And you know, this kind of plastic tire, the car tire, inside it's coming uh, some uh, iron, the iron inside the tire. And they start beating us. They lashes us on our feet. If you move your feet down, he will lash you in your back. If you scream or you move or you give any sound, this is big crime inside Naya. So when he lashes us, it's not allowed because I heard also our friend, they have some experience and they teach us while we are in the box. Don't shout, don't scream, don't say anything. Your voice, be careful they, that they will not hear your voice. For me, when he uh, was lashing me on my feet, the, the tire, there is one meter inside, it's stuck in, in my nails, in my foot nails, and it took it out with the blood. So I sound like this <clears throat> from the pain. So he told him, give him four more because this sound, four more lashes. Sednaya's so-called welcome parties are infamous. No one escapes from them. Whoever ends up being inside Sednaya has to be welcomed by Assad men, regardless of age, status, or physical condition. It's a declaration by Assad men that they are the gods of this place. Once it's done, they stuff tens of people inside tiny, dark, solitary cells. We reach to the cells. They put us inside, naked, for seven days. Temperature around zero, minus one. You know, Sidnaya area, very high from the sea level. It was January. The temperature, it, it was very, very cold. We are five people. We are warming each other. We hanging each other just to gain some, some warmth. We reach to the level from the cold. Sometimes you cannot control the movement from your body, your hand, your face, your lips, your legs, your stomach. Everything shaking, vibrating from the cold. You cannot control it. If I want to whisper to my friend, I cannot control my tongue and my lips to say one word from the cold, from the freezing weather inside for seven days. Every day the guards would come, open the door hatch and drop the food. And by food, I mean a few olives. The next day took us upstairs to another big room. We were 25 prisoners inside. They gave us our clothes, not complete. They took the good quality one and they gave us the, the rubbish from the clothes just to cover ourselves. And everyone, they gave him two blankets, military blanket. I imagine or calculating maybe around 2,000 people in each floor. And around like that, our imagination count how many rooms from this side, how many rooms from this side. And if each room containing 25 people, that's mean we are 2,000. From the 2,000 people in each floor, you hear nothing. Nothing. If you are on the wall, maybe you will imagine this area, it's empty. Nobody inside. Meanwhile, there is more than 2,000 in each floor. Not any sound. Sometimes I hear screaming. 
And when this guy scream, that means don't want to stay alive. That's why he's screaming from the beating, because he wants them to beat him or lashes him again to die. For a detainee to get a visit in Sidnaya, his family has to go through a lengthy, expensive, and hard journey. One year after her brother's enforced disappearance, Hufra and her family knew their whereabouts. A senior officer had asked for a bribe to help them. Someone very high in military, he said he can make us see them. And at the same day in the morning, me and my mother, we were asking about them in official places for government. And they said, we don't have them. We don't know anything about them. And at evening, when my brother pays the money in very secret way, because not easy and you will punish, they promise this person to show us Majid. And because uh, before a lot of soldiers told us they kill him, we want uh, very much to see him in person. So we paid this money and we went there. They gave us kind of envelope, but this envelope, you cannot open it. They said, you have to go to Sidnaya prison and to give this envelope to the guards there. One of the reasons why the Assad regime creates uncertainties about the status of the detainees is because his men benefit from enforced disappearance. It's estimated that the regime officers amassed hundreds of millions of dollars in bribes from the detainees' families. We want to see him in person, he is alive, but at the same time, we are afraid to see him in bad situation, like in bad health or something, but we want to see him. Between 2012 and 2013, the fight between the regime and the rebels intensified. The regime, of course, were much better equipped with the weapons they had. Yet, the Free Syrian Army and other factions started to take control and, quote, liberate more and more areas from the regime that responded by besieging and bombing those areas. Checkpoints were everywhere, and the road to Sidnaya wasn't easy for the families. We have to stop more than one point for the regime, checkpoint. And they check us and they deal also with us badly because they know we are family of activists. When we arrive to the place, also they search you and search your body in very bad way to check you don't have anything. We were full of happiness that, oh, he is alive. And we can see him finally after one year of not knowing if he is alive or not. So we are going now to see him alive. So it was a big moment. And we wait uh, for a long time, waiting, waiting for nothing. Then uh, they brought a bus, but this bus, it's window black. So you cannot see outside. And they took the families to the building and they put us in one room. It's like large and there is desk everywhere for people to sit. 
That's like school desk. The soldier tell you from outside, not allowed to tell him anything about what happening outside the prison. Only hello and hi, how are you? Only that. They threaten us if we tell him anything about what happening outside the prison, they will punish Majid. When you are there, you saw the family before you go and come. They are in queue. You saw when they come after seeing their loved, how much they are crying. So there is kind of fear what they are saying there. The same kind of instructions are delivered to the detainees as well. No matter what happens, you're not allowed to say anything other than Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Disobedience won't be tolerated. We went there uh, to Somajid and we know from before only five minutes. They told you five minutes. So we just cry and he cry. Uh, he was very thin, uh, but uh, at the same time, he was strong from inside. His uh, fe- feeling and personality, you feel that. When he was speaking to us, he's still full of hope. Going out, I will see you again. And... He want to catch our faces to see us more because we miss him and he miss us. So all the time, we, you cannot hug him because there is barriers between you and him from made from kind of iron. And also between the iron, there is kind of small uh, bath. And in this path, there is like very huge uh, soldier cross this path. And he is in another side after the bus. And also on his side, there is um, uh, also kind of iron. So there is d- distance between him and us. Sometimes we need to shout to make uh, him hear us. It's like only a wink because it's just five minutes and they come to take him and we start to cry again. You feel how much dictator they are, not allowed to hug him, not allowed to do anything. But what was good was his spirit was very high and full of hope and faith about what he doing and what he believe and that make the visit a little bit easier on us. At that day, we are only glad he's still alive. We were very happy he's still alive. The intermediary who took money from Rufran's family told them that Abed was transferred to Sidnaya and they could see him as well, though for a bigger cost. The family sold some of their properties to pay for both visits. They took Abed's children to see their father more than a year after his disappearance. When they brought him, 
We sought another person, maybe for another family. We don't uh, recognize him. We thought he is another person because he was very skinny and pale. They shaved his head, his body very weak. And only just when he arrived from his eyes, we recognized him. Nothing, uh, nothing is the same. His son, when also saw him, he didn't recognize his dad because his son was young. He was worried about us, asking what happened. How is Majid? He don't know that Majid is also inside. Ask us if Majid good or not. Last time, both of them, their body was weaker than when we saw them before. You can notice they are, they are struggling inside. Even you cannot say anything and also they cannot say anything. Only emotionally and you feel that. And because you know what's happening inside. In early 2013, news that prisoners were being killed in Sidmaya started to get out. Khafran's family tried different ways to get Majd and Habit transferred out of Sidmaya, but it didn't work. Adding to the family's restlessness, the middleman who used to facilitate their visits in exchange for money defected and left the country. Without these visits, the family couldn't tell if Majd and Abed were dead or alive. Around that time, Abraimad was transferred from Sidnaya's red building to the white one. His family had paid thousands of US dollars for that to happen, but he didn't know that. Unfortunately, in Sidnaya's white building, something sinister was happening. This is my nightmare up to this moment. There is one day during the week, they instruct us to go to sleep at the time of sunset, around 6, 6.30 in the evening. They instruct us to go to sleep at this, at this time, exactly, very early. When they instruct us to go to sleep, and after that, we felt a strange movement outside. A lot of precaution procedures, they are taken. Every five minutes, Inside the door, there is a small window, 10 centi by 10 centi, just to watch us. One of the guards, he come near to our door and open this small window. Every five minutes, approximately, he's coming and to check if we are slept yet or no. So we understand there is something strange happening. After midnight, we hear some truck coming near to us from outside. And after that, we hear that some people walking without shoes. That means they are prisoners like us. And we hear some lashes from time to time on the, the skin or flesh. We hear this, this sound. And after this movement, for five or 10 minutes, they take it downstairs. We can figure from the sound, from what we are hearing, we are hearing the steps of people and guard around them, and we hear the lashes on their bodies. That means they are almost naked. The sound of the guards also around the, the prisoners, it's very 
low sound like whispers. Move like that. Move, 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 move. Don't say anything. Don't look around. Move in front of you. Like that, the whispers of the guard. But the others, we only hear their steps outside to downstairs. And after that, we hear nothing. Till morning, every five to ten minutes, somebody come to open this small door to check if we are sleeping or not. In the morning, after they allow us to wake up, I hear the sound of digging on the mountain beside us, beside Saidnaya prison. The machine, cars, the sound of digging, which is let you imagine or figure out without any doubt that they were executing prisoners in the night and they are per them now at eight or nine o'clock. Every week we hear the same story. All of us, we don't have any doubt that they are doing that from the sound we are hearing. In a report titled The Human Slaughterhouse, Amnesty International documented a harrowing pattern of mass executions at Sidnaya prison. Between 2011 and 2015, it is estimated that 13,000 prisoners were killed in secret there. It described in detail how the Assad regime walked the detainees blindfolded to their death by hanging in an execution room underneath Sidnaya's white building. After that, they took the bodies to Tishreen Military Hospital for registration and then to mass graves. Overall, it is estimated that tens of thousands of people died in Sidnaya of starvation, torture, and execution. Until now, families don't know where their loved ones are buried. Abraimad's family managed to pay 35,000 US dollars to spare his life in Sidnaya. But when the guards told him he would be released, he didn't believe them. I thought they are joking. I cannot believe this. How they will release me? Because I don't know what happened with my family and they pay money. I, do, I know nothing. So I was completely shocked. And I don't have any doubt that they are going to execute me 100%. I'm not going outside this area. Never. Only to the grave. If he told me we are going to execute you, I will believe. If you told me we are moving you to another room where is books allowed to read. I cannot imagine better than this news. But you are telling me you are free? Like if I told you you win one billion dollar today. You are not going to believe. When he was freed, he discovered that his family had left the country. He had to stay at his mother-in-law's flat in Damascus while still in a state of disbelief about his release from Sidnaya. The detention rules and sounds haunted him. Detainees have to gather in the cell toilet once the door opens. First night, I have doubt. They will come to arrest me anytime, but they are waiting somebody to come to say hi to me and they will arrest us. This is a trap from them. So all night, when I hear any sound outside, car sound, steps, knocking on the door, I run directly to the toilet because I'm used to run to the toilet from the Sidnaya time. When you hear any steps, you have to be in the toilet. I run to the toilet. My mother-in-law, 
what happened, Jamal? What you are? I I say nothing, nothing. I just want to go to the toilet. First days like that, I cannot sleep very well. Sometimes I analyze why I'm not sleeping. Maybe one of the reason I don't want to go to sleep. Maybe I will wake up and this is a dream that I'm released. Really. Detention in Sydney leaves scars on survivors that would never heal. What they experience inside Sydney's tight and dark cells lives with them for the rest of their lives. Sydney should be removed from the earth. Should be removed completely. It's better to remove it like cancer. After a few months, when I am able to go out of Damascus, my family they come to visit me. I left behind me my little daughter, Ruru, one year and two months old. She was trying to make her first steps. I left her in this situation. So all time in the prison, when I remember my family with a smile, like my smile right now, <laughs> I imagine her 1.2 years old and trying to make her steps and falling down, and I catch her like that. Always I'm playing with her, and she's 14 months old, so she's still in my mind. 14 months old, trying to make her first steps for more than two years. Every day, this photo, this video, this imagination, I'm living with this girl, 14 months, trying to make her first step. So when I saw her, it become more than three years. This is not Truru. Where is that Truru, that child? trying to make her first steps. I missed that girl. They killed her. <sighs> this is my story. For five years, Ghafran's family searched tirelessly for Majd and Abd. If they could, they would have turned the earth upside down to know where they were and what happened to them. In the summer of 2018, the family received Majd and Abd's death certificates. It was shocking, deadly shocking for all the family. My sister told me in the phone what she know about. But uh, in beginning, my mom and dad, they don't know. I told her and told my dad. It was very difficult and shocking, uh, heartbreaking, and I want to tell them what happened, but at the same time, I'm afraid about them, their health. After a campaign led by the families demanding answers about the missing detainees inside Assad's death camps, in 2018, the regime began to release death certificates to some family members visiting their local civil registry office in search of their loved ones. Instead of acknowledging that detainees' deaths were caused by starvation, torture, and executions, the Assad regime said all the deaths were due to natural causes. 
According to the official record, they both had passed away on the same day, 15 of January. And I don't know how the regime in beginning all the time denied they have them. And now he released certificate this for this for all these detainees, not only my brothers. And after waiting all this long time and searching with hope and fear at the same time and in very bad way the regime released information without any kind of feeling. My family situation were similar to a lot of families in my city who received same certificate of death. Ofran and so many other Syrian families continue to fight for their right to find out the truth about their missing loved ones and for the detainees in Syria to be freed. Currently, there are still hundreds of thousands of people inside Assad's network of prisons, including Sedline. Behind each is a heartbreaking story of pain and loss, and justice is nowhere in sight. Next week on Behind the Sun, we continue with Assad's use of official documents to consolidate his grip on the country. Riyadh sees horrors in Adra, Diab gets back to Syria, and Ghafran's family is facing another tragedy. Behind the Sun is a co-production between Message Heard and the Syria Campaign, in collaboration with the Association of Detainees and the Missing, ADMSP, and the Syrian Center for Justice and Accountability, SJAC, under its project On the Margins No More. The series is written and produced by Mohammed Farouk. Thank you to Ranim, Ola, Sara, Maiz, and Rory from the Syria Campaign, and Raha from ADMSP for helping put this series together. Additional thanks to Mahmoud Nawara for providing voiceover and translation. Editing, mixing, and sound design was done by Yerik Zaba and Ivan Eastley. Additional production support from Molly Freeman, Tom Biddle, and Lincoln Bunder Westhazen. Sandra Ferrari is the executive producer. The theme music is by Milo Evans. My name is Nigel Bukai. <laughs>